So this week, we heard stories in the news that Israel was invaded by Hamas terrorists. And the hundreds and then thousands of rockets shot into their territory in retaliation. The stories people are telling themselves about space, about other groups of people, about what's right, are very different depending on where you are in that conflict. And the stories that you're living matter. This past week, we had the privilege to hear from Gary and Marilyn Skinner, who in 1984 started a church in Kampala, Uganda, which was undergoing a civil war. That church became Watoto, the church, the Watoto Children's Choir, and the different children's homes to care for children, then to care for preemie babies, and then to rehabilitate child soldiers who had been involved in the conflict. Watoto now has many church uh, campuses all over Uganda and in South Sudan, 34,000 people on a Sunday morning. And just a year ago, they transitioned to local leadership uh, that now the lead pastors of that church are an African couple who have been raised in that church, grown up in that church, and now they are leading Watoto Church in all of the ministries. So 35 years ago when they moved, or 40 years ago when they moved to Uganda, God had spoken something. And they began to live a different story. The story that you live matters. A young girl grows up in Albania. She has a strange sense of devotion to God. She moves to Ireland to learn English, to prepare for missionary work. And one day, on a religious retreat, something happens. That young woman would become Mother Teresa. The stories that we live matter. The stories that we live have consequences. Who we think we are, what we think is important, what we think of those around us, we're living, all of us, in the middle of a story. I love what Donna Miller says about that we don't live our story, we live our subplot. It's God's story. And what we live is a subplot in God's story. And things do go, go wrong to begin, right, when we make the stories all about us. One author said this, he says, there's a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you'll end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to become distracted by the various baubles that life has to offer. The black hole of social media. Working to strive and acquire things that eventually will rust and fall away. Taking things that are good, like family and romance and other things, like work, and elevating them to a place that God never intended them to occupy. But all of, them, all of us live a story. It doesn't matter if you're a person that considers yourself a Christian or not, has faith or not, whether you live in Canada, whether you live in the global south. All of us live a story. And there's some stories that the stories answer different questions, right? All of us have, in our heads at least, an answer to this question. Why am I here? Why am I here? Think about that for a second. How would you answer that? Why am I here? What about this one? What's gone wrong? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? Some of us think there's nothing wrong with us, and that's also part of the problem, right? I can get there sometimes. What's the solution? 
And then what does wholeness look like? What does restoration look like? What would it mean for things to be made well? All of us are asking and answering these questions, and all of us live according to what we thought about this. One person says this, and they're using the word um, animal just to kind of talk about what kind of creature we are. But he says this, man is essentially a storytelling animal. We're storytelling creatures. But we're, we're trying to tell stories that aspire to truth. We're trying to say what we think is true. That means I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the question before that, the prior question. What story or stories do I find myself part of? And some of us think of ourselves as our, our family story, the story of our relationship or our marriage, the story of our work. And hopefully for Christians, first and foremost is the story of God. Because the stories of culture are very different, right? A lot of times if you read biographies of people, right, you can talk about people overcoming great odds. And we also love to have biographies that are success stories, right? Like, okay, this is, you know, Phil Knight and Shoe Dog. This is how he founded Nike and how he grew it into the global empire it was today, right? Here's the leader of this company or that company. Here's a success story. Even the accounts we follow, right, on social media, man, this person is really good at fill in the blank, right? They're really good at this thing or that thing. We like success stories. But that's not all there is, right? What about culture's idea that self-actualization, becoming really yourself, doing what's true to you, doing what's authentic? That's a big story people live, right? They want to live into whatever makes them more themselves, more authentic to become whatever can reach their fullest potential. God made us to reach potential, but only as part of a bigger story and only according to how God defines those things, right? What about being an activist? What about achieving something and working on behalf of others? Is that something that we do in service to how God's made us to be in the world? Or is that our whole identity? Because for some people, it's their whole identity, right? I am an activist, and what I do, what I accomplish, the social change that I can do in the world, that's my story. That's the primary story that I'm living into. And we see Jesus, right, call his disciples. And Jesus in the story of God, right, comes at the right time, born of a virgin, grows up, learns a trade, is educated in the synagogue. And in that time, he lives into the story of a rabbi, right? He becomes a teacher. And Jesus begins to invite people to come and follow me. So he interrupts stories, right? He interrupts Peter's story of being a fisherman with an invitation, come and follow me. He says, I've seen you under the fig tree, right? To Nathaniel. Interrupts his story and says, come and follow me. And Jesus offers things, right, to even the rich young ruler and other people and says, you can come and follow me. But the invitation is going to be an interruption as well. For some, it was to leave their fishing nets. For some, it was to leave their riches. For some, it was to leave behind a potential inheritance. Jesus has an invitation to become a part of a bigger story. And just as it did in the New Testament, it's going to involve for us leaving things behind, or at least leaving them as secondary. Because Jesus' invitation to a better story, to know him, and to know his power, and to know the gospel, is the one that will eventually set the rest of our lives in place. For the people in the New Testament, what Jesus was offering was significant. To learn from a rabbi to learn from the Messiah? They would kind of get to know his identity a little more as time went on. But, okay, I want to be part of this. God is doing something, and it's worth leaving things for. 
Some would judge that it was worthy of leaving their nets for, or leaving their inheritance, or leaving their jobs, or leaving their wealth from tax collecting. And others would say, I I'm not ready for that. But all of them saw, realized that it was, it was a big thing, it was a big call. But that's not the way we see it in this culture, right? Mostly religion isn't seen as a big calling at all, and especially the gospel of Christ. Most often it's just seen as something that doesn't really matter much at all. And the first thing that God reminds us of his story is that it's a big deal. Following Christ isn't an, an add-on or something tacked on as a bit of recreation in our lives. It's not something that we do in addition to all of our other stories or the other things that make up our identity. It's something that is significant. When Jesus says, come and follow me, Christopher J.H. Wright says this. He says, many people are rejecting the gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, because they believe it to be trivial. They look at Christians and go, well, what difference does it actually make? These are people that look like me, they talk like me, they spend like me. What difference does it actually make? At most, it's just a nice add-on if I wanted to, but it seems to me to be a trivial thing. And so today we're just going to go over again what the gospel is, what Christ's message is, what God's story is for us. If you go to a life group this week, if you go to the midweek group, we're going to talk a little bit more in that about having conversations with people, what it's like to present the gospel, what it means to uh, talk with people at different levels of their faith journey in different places as they're encountering Christ. But today in the, in the Sunday portion, we're just going to talk again about the gloriousness and the greatness of what Christ has done. So here's the story of, of, of Christianity. Here's God's story in the gospel. We get creation. We get the fall, we get redemption, and we get restoration. We begin with creation, right? That's the story of how things began. Things don't begin in sin. I don't know if, if, if you grew up like me, um, and sometimes it felt like that was the beginning of, of the gospel, is everything is bad, everything is sinful. And, and, and again, as reading the Bible and knowing things more, I'm like, oh, okay. God made the world and first it was very good. God made animals and said, it's very good. God made man and woman and said, it's very good. And we begin with God creating us in his goodness for relationship with him. And in his goodness, that's where we begin. And we get a picture of this is what God's made us to be before sin enters the picture, right? I love the image of like, you know, God's painted this masterpiece and sin has just gone and thrown some uh, bright, ridiculous paint in the canvas, right? Sin has tried to cover up and distort what God has done. What God wants to do is restore the image that he's created, restore his original intent. So God's story doesn't begin with sin. It doesn't begin with the fall. It begins with creation. How did God make us? He made us good. He made the world good. So we begin with a story about God, right? God has created us to walk with him and know him, Adam and Eve, right, to speak with God, to walk with God in the cool of the day. This is God's ideal for humanity, to speak and know God. And then as God gives direction, right, he set them over the garden to do things. But as they walked and talked with God, as they got to know who God was and who each other was, they also had a good idea of what it meant to be themselves. So there wasn't just a concept of, you know, God in this original creation. There's the really idea of what do you know about yourself? What's your identity? Who are you? Well, you're made in God's image and likeness. And as they wrote down in Genesis, right, what God had done, this is in such stark contrast to every other culture story at the time, right? 
when you speak about the story of God, when you read Genesis, there's dignity of how God's made humans. They're in his image. There's a nobility, right, that they are set over the earth. Again, not to take what they want, but to care for it and to, and to be stewards of it. There's a distinction and a worth to being a human being. And this is where all of our stories begin, what God has made humans to be, is people in his image with worth and dignity. Contrast that, right, to like the Sumerian or Babylonian stories where humans are either slaves of the gods or just leftovers, right? That humans, humans are just a byproduct of what the gods have done. Humans aren't made to just be slaves to the God and not care for themselves. No, what God did when he created us was he created us out of an overflow of love between the persons of the Trinity, that God wanted to share who he was. And he made the world good, he made us good, and he made each human inherently valuable in who they are. And so the community they had before sin entered the world was great, right? Community with God and community with others. That's where they, why they mentioned the whole thing about clothing in Genesis, right? They were naked and unashamed. They couldn't have an idea of what it would mean to have a broken relationship, of what it would mean to have lust enter the picture, what it would mean to have a broken way of relating between beings or people, or people start. Everything was just good. And so when God begins with who he is and creates us good and has relationships between us good, he also was concerned with how he sets us within his creation, right? To be what? Stewards of a good world. To take care of creation. To create culture. That people would be in the garden and they would work. And they would, they, they would take what is there and they would create things. I love the observation, you know, many people have said it. The Bible starts in a garden, but it ends in a city, right? We start with the garden of God and we move towards the city of God. That as we are God's people, we are not just leaving things alone. We're not hands off. We're not just sitting in a garden eating whatever pops up, but we're tilling the soil. We're making stuff. We're doing things. From the beginning, humans have been here to create culture. And so this is going to inform what you do as a person right now. If you understand that God made us in his image out of love to, work, to live in good relationship with others and not to just passively observe the world or throw up our hands and go, man, culture's really going to a bad place. But that God's created us to shape culture and to do things in our culture. That gives us tools, that gives us a perspective, that gives us the encouragement that God wants us to be hands-on and involved in the world that he's made. And that's despite what happens next, right? That's despite the fall. That demons and Satan had rebelled against God and deviated from what his good creation was. And then humans, tempted again by Satan, fell into sin. They rebelled actively against God. And so with God, right, this brought spiritual death. We no longer had access to the tree of life to live forever with God. This brought a problem of not just shame or broken relationship, though it did, but we became dead and not able to live forever with God. It also brought brokenness with ourselves. That now self-hatred, distorted identity, beginning to forget who we are, shame, right, that we would hide from God like the first people. This distorted identity and hiding and shame entered the picture. And of course, sin would distort our relationship with others. Mistrust between people, right? Suspicion. What's the very first thing that happens when God talks to Adam and Eve about their sin? Oh, he made me do it. 
oh, she did this, right? Adam blames his wife, his wife blames the snake. All of a sudden, relationships between people start to become distorted. And how people use the world going out from there, right, has so often deviated from what God's intended. Instead of being stewards of God's earth, instead of taking care of it for the master, for God who is the king, people began to forget and just use and take what they wanted. You see through the Old Testament, right, so many lands being covered in salt after war so they would produce nothing. No care for the people in those lands and no care for the earth itself. Proverbs says, The righteous man cares for the needs of his animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. When God speaks to Jonah about saving the city of Nineveh, he says there's you know, 120,000 people there who don't know the right hand from their left and also many animals. God keeps caring for creation through the Old Testament. But so often to us it's become an afterthought to care for God's world. The scriptures describe sin like this. A physical burden. That's in Isaiah. The Bible describes our sin as a debt to God that has to be paid. Hosea very graphically describes sin as a form of spiritual adultery against God, being unfaithful to God. A rebellion, as in Joshua, a transgression, so going against the law in Romans 4.15. 1 John 3.4 says a great lawlessness. Romans calls it disobedience, and Philippians calls it a type of false worship. That's the human condition now without Jesus, that we've chosen as a human race and we're affected by it, right? You're born into this. And we choose it from such a young age to be part of this. We are affected by sin. And it's not something that we can get enough therapy to get our way out of. It's not something we can get, you know, enough technology and work our way to Star Trek and get our way out of it that way. The problem of sin is so serious, it affects everything it touches. Michael Goheen says this, all spheres of life, marriage and family, work and worship, school and state, our play and art, bear the wounds of our rebellion. It's true, right? Sin is present everywhere. In pride of race, in arrogance of nations, in abuse of the weak and helpless, in disregard for water, air, and soil, in destruction of living creatures, into slavery, deceit, terror, and war, in worship of false gods, and in a frantic escape from reality. That last one alone, eh? Talk about that in our culture. The frantic escape from reality. We have become victims of our own sin. But God, right? He didn't leave us in our sins. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus didn't leave us here. As we said last week, right, the gospel, the announcement that a new king was on the throne was a term from ancient times, right? That if you didn't know who was king or what was going on, things were very unstable, very uncertain. Would somebody be a good ruler or in the, the absence of a ruler, would there be complete anarchy, right? Would people just do what they wanted with no consequences, with no idea of what, what, what would happen. And so the gospel, good news, was a herald riding from town to town or running from town to town saying, good news, this king is on the throne. There's a new king. There's somebody in charge. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, the authors of the New Testament picked this word quite intentionally. This is the good news. Christ is on the throne. 
Christ has lived a sinless life. He's died, defeated death, hell, sin, and the devil. And he's been risen again, defeated sin, sin, death, hell, and the devil. And we can have our sins forgiven. We can be raised to life again. We can spend eternity with God. That relationship can be restored. The good news is that God, our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin. And that through us, he works by his Holy Spirit to establish his kingdom and announce this good news. And so as God worked through the Old Testament to save people, to save Noah, to call Abraham, to make a people for himself, to have the nation of Israel and the land that they're in, and one day to bring Jesus, God has been making a way from the start as fast as possible so that all nations can come up and worship him, that everyone can know him and be freed from sin. Colossians 1 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, this is Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's what Jesus has done. You may have seen some of these scriptures that come next before. We talk a lot about what Christ has done on the cross. And it's always worth understanding again just how great it is what Jesus has done for us. But also what we're saying to other people, what we're praying for other people. This is the redemption that Christ has accomplished. And this is what God wants to do for our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates. This is what God has come to do and what he wants to do in everyone's life. We are saved from the penalty of sin. That's from 2 Corinthians. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we don't have to pay for our sins anymore. God's removed those consequences, and he's paid for them on the cross. Now, we do things on earth, right? We may still encounter consequences. If you speed, you're still going to get a ticket, right? We say harsh words that's still going to break a relationship that needs to be restored. But God has removed the eternal penalty for our sins. God has a not guilty verdict declared over us for eternity in Christ. If you struggle with guilt, or if you struggle with shame, that broken relationship, God says in Jesus, you're forgiven, and that relationship is restored. Romans 6:11, right? We are saved from the power of sin. That as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you're not living by your own strength anymore. The Holy Spirit gives us power to change, power to witness, power for mission, power to do good, and power to live in ways relating to God, ourself, others, and creation that are in line with what God wants. The process is called sanctification. That's the word we use in church. As our body, our mind, and our will become more like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're saved in Revelation 21 from the presence of sin. That one day Christ will not only wipe away every tear from our eyes, but all trace of sin from the earth. That he will judge rightly, divide rightly. We will live in a renewed and restored heaven and earth with the presence of God right there. We're not just saved from things, right? Jesus didn't just come to say, okay, I'm going to take this away. But God saved us for himself. We're saved for Jesus, for the relationship with God, for that reconciliation, where God's presence himself will live with us forever. That's why when we meet in church, we're not just celebrating, God, you've taken my sins away, but God, you've drawn near. God, I don't just celebrate you for what you've done in the past through communion, but that your Holy Spirit is speaking today, that you want to draw close, that you want to heal and restore and deliver and meet me 
today in your gathered community as the church and as I go out on a mission by the power of your Holy Spirit. God wants us to be with him and know him as his children, that he's called us his friends now, not just his helpers or his servants. That God wants to speak to us by the scriptures, by the Holy Spirit, and by each other's spiritual gifts. Because the heart of Christianity is not a moral one, right? There's moral aspects. It certainly affects our morals. But the heart of Christianity is not change, get better, and God's going to love you. It's God has so loved the world that he will help us desire to will, to want what he wants, to repent and turn from the things that he doesn't, and to act, to live out what his good purposes are. That's what God's done by Jesus in the cross. So when it comes to God, we're born again, right? We have a new life. We're restored. When it comes to ourselves, we are loved. We are chosen. We are God's kids. When it comes to others, God is the reconciler who makes us ambassadors with his message. There's a new kind of humanity he's made possible, an equality, a love that are only through Christ. And T. Wright says this about our relationship with the world. He says, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. That as we proclaim the gospel, as we speak clearly about what Jesus has done, that we live for the benefit and the good of the world. And we be examples in our suffering, in our sacrifice, and how much we give, and working for the good of what God's made in this world. I had to laugh when I lived in uh, Hamilton. And uh, there was somebody who was talking about, you know, all these, like, kids' day camps. And they're like, man, why are they all churches? Why aren't there just some, like, non-religious day camps? And I'm like, well, if you want to get together 40 volunteers, eight leaders, a bunch of police checks, and do it all for free, I'm pretty sure churches are the only ones who are that invested in doing it. <laughs> the gospel motivates us to do stuff that people aren't necessarily motivated to do for other reasons. That's why when God called the Skinners, right, to plant the church in Watoto, he also called them to open up the homes for orphans from the AIDS crisis, legitimate orphans, kids who didn't have parents to go back to, who didn't have ways to restore a family, for child soldiers and for preemies, to do what no one else was doing at the time. And as people became adults and young professionals started coming to their church from all over, to train them for community impact. Because God wants Uganda to flourish, right? And God wants South Sudan where they are now to flourish. And God wants Sault Ste. Marie and Ontario to flourish. According to people who love his will and his ways. Because God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He's made us as agents by his Holy Spirit. We proclaim the gospel. And through suffering love, we work to do good in the world. According to what God calls good. According to what God calls righteous. Titus 3 says this, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And we do that until Christ comes again. We are heirs of a kingdom that is God's kingdom. 
As I said last week, the message that we carry and the mission that we're on, they're not our own. They're Christ's. And we look forward to restoration. Some people use the word renewal here, right? But there's creation. There's been a fall into sin. Christ has bought redemption. And we look forward to the end of all things, to the restoration, to the renewal. And when we work to do things that please God and help people and love our cities, we're not going, yeah, I'm going to bring about the kingdom. I'm going to do it myself. We go, no, no, no. I'm just going to do a little prophetic foretaste. I'm just going to show you a bit of what God's kingdom is going to be like. I'm just going to help show you a little bit of what God wants for people and wants for this earth. Because one day, he's going to do it all. He's going to finish the job. He's going to be the one who wipes away every tear from our eyes, restores creation. The Bible says the nations will walk in glory and light. And we'll see God like we've hoped. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, at the end of some of the books, they talk about going further up and further in, into what God wants. They also use the image of it's kind of like an onion, right? As you go up further into what for Lewis was the kingdom of God and what God wanted, he says it's like an onion, but every layer is bigger than the one before, right? What we see are just shadows of what it's going to be one day. And at the end of the Narnia series, it ends like this. This is Aslan the lion, who's the Christ figure in the story. This is an image of what the kingdom of God is like, what it's going to be when God restores all things. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for this, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in the world... And all their adventures in Narnia had only, begin, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. We're just getting ready for the great story. And in the meantime, we are God's ambassadors, God's heralds, the announcers of the kingdom of God. Because God wants people to come with him. God wants us and those we know and those we love to experience the salvation of Jesus, to apply what he's done by his blood, to receive what Christ has done. So our response, if we know Christ, we can look back at this, probably for a moment, but also ongoing what God's doing in our lives, for the process of that receiving what God's done, but also how God works this in our lives overall. We're called to repentance, right? We're called to receive it. Os Guinness says this, a key part of this moment of commitment, of coming to know Jesus, of making a decision for Christ, is when a person seeking suddenly blossoms into knowing, knowing into trusting, and then that knowing and trusting into loving God, and the unmistakable knowledge and experience of being loved by God. If you have a moment like that, think back to it. Some of it's hard to identify a moment. It might be a week or a month or a season in your life where you're like, okay, you know what, now I, I believe. For some of us, it was like a lightning bolt, and you can tell me the second it happened. 
But common to knowing Christ is you have an experience saying, I receive and I repent. I turn away from sin and all that it's done to me, my relationship with God, my relationship with others, what I've done to the world. God, I receive. I turn away from the way of life that's steeped in the instincts of rebellion. And I turn to you, Jesus. I want to confess what I've done. And I want to relate rightly to you, God, and others. I want to receive your grace and mercy. So that's faith, right? That repentance comes with faith. I believe who you are, Jesus. God's raised you from the dead, and it's true, and I need to receive it. That's that response of faith, of putting active trust. If you're like me and probably every other person on the planet, when you carry groceries in from the store, you want to do it in one trip, right? And you will do anything to load up your arms with, like, as many reusable bags of groceries. But sometimes there's that awful moment when you, like, you haven't used the plastic bags, you've used, like, the, the cloth ones, and you've just overloaded it a little much, and all of a sudden you just hear it start to rip. You're like, it's given way. I put my faith in the wrong thing, right? I put my trust in something, and it ain't going to hold. Our faith in Christ will always hold, right? I believe God and who you are. I believe your death is sufficient. I believe you will carry me through. That's faith, right? I put in trust. I believe. And then there's obedience, right? There's things where you have to say, God, I turn from this in my life. I'm going to stop doing this. I mean, to get a lot of help to stop doing this. And sometimes that's where deliverance ministry and prayer and therapy and all those things can come in to help us understand what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Sometimes altar calls and touches from God are how that happened. Sometimes it's persistent prayer. Sometimes it's an instant deliverance thing. I remember uh, some of my friends in high school, they all came to know Christ at the same time. And two of my friends could instantly stop smoking because they wanted to stop smoking cigarettes. And one guy, it just, it wasn't instant. It took forever. And he was so frustrated, right? Like, why would God just, like, instantly help these guys to get over this without any, you know, remaining nicotine addiction? And why is it taking so long for me? I don't know. (laughs) But God knows, right? God knows why that discipleship, why that struggle, why that persistence developed, that patience developed, that perseverance developed in my friend's life through that was necessary for him. And last time we uh, visited him in St. Catharines, he was like the most health nut of all my friends, and he was making like some kind of smoothie and stuff and cooking vegetarian stuff for him. I'm like, this is great, right? I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it started with how you came to Christ. <laughs> but certainly God's given you an awareness about your health and your body and who you are That's the most developed out of all my friends from that era. But the most important thing is obedience. God, however long it takes, whatever you do, however you do it, I obey. And I will continue to obey as your Holy Spirit reveals things in my life. I'm going to order my desires with your desire. I'm going to do what you say to do and turn away what you say to turn away from. Because God, I believe, I have faith that you desire my flourishing that you desire what is best. I believe that what you want is what is best for us. As we close today, I have a few things here we can pray for other people. One person just said this, narrative is our culture's currency. Whoever tells the best story wins. For those of us that follow Jesus, we know that it's not only the best story, but the true story. This is what Christ has done. God's created us out of love. There's been a fall because of the free will that we have. God has paid the price of redemption, and we look forward to restoration and renewal. 
And if you're like me, you desire that the people you know find this as well. That God equips us and we begin to have boldness for the conversations we need to have about this. That God increases the opportunities just from how we live our lives, that those opportunities come up. That people receive. They commit and obey and receive Jesus. So as we close, I'm going to have Jared come up and sing a worship song. But can I invite you guys to stand up? And I want you to think about someone. Just one person for now. You can always grab your phone and take some shots of the screen if you want. If you want to pray these things for the next week. But I want you to think of one person that you know that you would like to get to know Jesus. And as I pray these things that are on the screen, would you just fill in their name in the blank? God, as John 6.44 says, would you draw this person to yourself by your Holy Spirit? God, as it says in Acts 17, would you help this person seek to know you, God, to want to know you? God, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, help this person hear and believe the word of God. God, as it says in your word, prevent Satan from blinding this person to the truth. Step in, God. Open their eyes. God, please convict this person of their sin and reveal their need for Christ's redemption. Not for staying in guilt, God, but for the, for the ability to find your freedom. God, as it says in Matthew 9, Lord, would you give me a chance to share your word with this person, to tell them of the gospel. As it says in Colossians and Ephesians, Lord, would you give me the opportunity, the words, and the courage to share your truth with this person, Lord. I pray as it says in John, Lord, this person would put all of their trust in Christ. 100%, God, they would have faith that you can carry them, God, and that you are true. And finally, Lord, as it says in parables like the wheat and in Romans and Colossians, Lord, I pray that in this person's life, the gospel would take fruit, take, take root, God, that it would hold, that it would bear much fruit, God, 30, 60, 100-fold what was sown in their life. By your Holy Spirit, Jesus, we are your servants, and we love you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus. And thank you, God, that we get to bring your gospel message. Help us to keep praying these prayers, God. Pray bold prayers. Pray urgent prayers. Pray prayers of persistence and fasting, knowing, God, that we want people to know you, Jesus. We love you. We know you're here right now. In Jesus' name, amen.